You are listening to Real Life and Other Fantasies, a podcast by engaging storytellers for engaged story listeners. Here's your host, author and journalist, Melvin E. Edwards. Hello, fellow storytellers, and welcome to this edition of Real Life and Other Fantasies. I'm excited to talk to our guest today because he's a man who seems to have been born to tell stories for a living. It's my pleasure to introduce Mr. Bob Kendrick, the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. Bob, I'm honored to have you on my show today. Well, Melvin, it's an honor to be on the show, man. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being here. All right, so... Um, you're a man who seems to have been living this dream for several years, but did you ever think that you would one day have your own MLB baseball card, have your voice featured in a major video game, be in a new documentary like The League, and have a satellite radio podcast like Black Diamonds? Uh, you're a multimedia star now. That's a long, that's a long ways from Crawfordsville, Georgia. It's an awful long way from Crawfordville, Georgia, and the answer to your question is no. I don't know if there's any way to dream that that was going to be how fate would ultimately lead me down the path that I have, you know, the path that I've gone. When I got involved with the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, it was as a volunteer way back in 1993, 30 years ago. And honestly, Melvin, I just wanted to do what I could to support the organization. The minute that I walked into, at that time, a little one-room office here at Historic 18th and Vine, I didn't realize I had just walked into what will become my passion and what would become one of the most gratifying things I think I could have done either personally or professionally. I did not see, however, that it was going to turn into this rewarding career as it has. So the things that you talked about in this introduction, no, there's no way to see those things coming. I just to do whatever I could to pitch in and support this museum. And for me, it has been a blessing that I've gotten the opportunity to meet some amazing people, do some amazing things with this museum being the platform that has created those opportunities. I, I tell people all the time, and I mean it sincerely, this museum has given me far more than I've ever given it. And uh, I don't take it for granted, the things that I've had the, have, I've been afforded the opportunity to do. And you, you touched on this kid from Crawfordville, Georgia, man, all the 500 people. You know, I've walked through this museum with American presidents, uh, first ladies of these United States of America, the late great General Colin Powell, a plethora of athletes and entertainers, my all-time favorite baseball player and my childhood idol, Henry Aaron. You know, and some days I'm sitting, I would be sitting in my office and the receptionist would yell out, Mr. Kendrick, Ernie Banks is on the phone for you. And, and you know, those are those pinch me moments. You know what I'm saying to myself? Ernie Banks is on the phone for me? Henry Aaron is on the phone for me. So no, you don't expect those kind of things. It's just been the byproduct of the work that we do. And I'm eternally grateful for having had these kinds of opportunities. And now these platforms to help, again, elevate the awareness of this history. And of course, this museum as the caretaker of this great history. Well, that's awesome. Um, the name of this podcast is Real Life and Other Fantasies. And that's because sometimes your real life is 
bigger and greater than anything you could ever make up. <laughs> that sounds like that's what your life has been like. So I've heard you speak a lot and I consider you to be the ultimate storyteller. That's why I'm so excited to have you here on this podcast. Uh, do you in any way consider yourself to be the storytelling descendant of the great Buck O'Neill? I think in so many ways that is what happened and maybe it, it, it happened, you know, by happenstance, I don't know, just being around him for so many years, listening to him tell the stories. You know, the difference, Melvin, is that he lived those stories that he told. I, I get to share them and relate them back to people. I got them firsthand, but I didn't live them. But the one thing that I admire so much about Buck, and, and I do think I absorbed some of this from him, if he told a story, and I don't care how many times he may have told the story, if he was going to tell it to you, he was going to tell it to you like it was the first time he ever told the story. He wasn't going to cheat you. And, and I think, you know, as a storyteller, and those of us who fashion ourselves now to be storytellers, I don't know at the onset I saw myself that way, but certainly a lot of people do, there's no greater compliment than when people say, I felt like I was there. When wow. you can paint a picture that is so vivid with words that people feel like they were taken back in time and they're there to witness that showdown between Satchel and Josh. Or you can see or envision the speed of cool Papa Bell or the power of Josh Gibson as you're wearing that Homestead Grays jersey. You know, that is the ultimate compliment for any of us in this line of work that, again, has gotten or earned a reputation as being a storyteller. But I do think a lot of it comes from absolutely being around the legendary Buck O'Neill, who I consider the greatest storyteller of all time, particularly as it relates to baseball. Yeah, I would love to have met him. I, I felt like I knew him <laughs> just from watching him, various interviews with him. Obviously, I, I never met him, but I, I felt like I had a connection with him. Yeah. I, I can't imagine what it would have been like to be around him and learn from him. And and he just seemed like a, a genuine man who was a great storyteller and a, yeah. a great humanitarian. He, he, he really was. You know, he was that rare breed, man. You know, this world could use a whole lot more Buck O'Neill. Just the grace and the dignity, his gentle spirit, it, it just captivated you. And... If you didn't know him, you wanted to know him. You were drawn to him. But you know what? He wanted to know you too. He, he honestly <laughs> fed off of being around people. It, it fueled him and it energized him. And, and I tell people, people ask me all the time what I remember most about Buck. And obviously there were so many wonderful things that I enjoyed hanging out with Buck O'Neill the many car rides, plane rides, breakfast, lunch, dinner, playing golf together, the good-natured ribbing that he would give you, uh, all of that. But the thing that I remember the most about Buck, and I think this is a true understanding of who Buck O'Neill was as a human being, is that you always felt better leaving Buck than you wow. did when you came to see him. And there's not many people that strike you in that way. I don't care no. how bad your day <laughs> might have been going. 
if you had a chance encounter with Buck O'Neill, it got better. Yeah, you left smiling. You were feeling a little bit better no matter what troubles you might have in your life. That is something that is special. And I witnessed this, man. I witnessed it everywhere we went. We would be in the airport and he would just go over to some folks and introduce himself. My name is Buck O'Neill. What's yours? By the time we're leaving, you actually sounded like him there. Yeah, yeah, no, by the time we're leaving to go to our respective gates, they are sharing an embrace as if they've known each other all their lives. But you see, wow. the man never met a stranger in his life. He just didn't. And I think that he had a certain innateness. Uh, to me, the same kind of innateness that we knew and loved Dr. Martin Luther King Mother Teresa, Gandhi, the universal ability to see the good in people. Sometimes Melvin, when they weren't good, (laughs) Buck saw the good in them. And I think that's what drove him. And that's why he lived such a long, rich, fulfilled life. Because again, as he said, he never learned to hate. Yeah, And that it was so much easier to love than it was to hate. And we definitely need more people like him in this world. Oh, we absolutely. Like I've, I've been to the baseball National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, eight times, I think. And always the first place I go after I go through the, the turnstiles is to go in and take my picture with the Buck O'Neill statue every, every time I go in there. So I, I just feel that connection, too. Yeah, you know, no, got- a lot of people do, man. And we, even when you come here to his museum, you feel his spirit here. Now, his spirit still resides here. And and certainly as long as I have any say-so in the matter, it will always be home here at his house, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. As it should be. All right, so um, got a couple quick questions for you. Yes, so sir. I understand that even non-baseball fans have heard of players like Satchel Paige, Josh Gibson, mm-hmm. which I'm wearing um, Josh's jersey here, and Cool Papa Bell. Um, so I, I won't ask you about them right now. But So can you tell us about a couple of your favorite stories about some of the lesser known Negro Leagues men and women who played during that segregated era? Well, you know, one of my favorite players to talk about who's a lesser known player, but only in terms of recognition. One is the great Cuban ball player, Martin DeHigo. Nicknamed him El Maestro, the master, because he could do it all played all nine positions, played all nine of them well. Melvin, he is the only baseball player in the history of our sport to be enshrined into five different countries' baseball halls of fame. He's in the Mexican, Cuban, Venezuelan, Dominican, and in Cooperstown. One year in the Mexican League, DeHigo wins the pitching title. He goes something like 18-2 and with a ridiculous... 0.90 0.90 ERA. Wow. Oh, it gets even better. The sucker hits 387 that same season and won the batting title. That's the wow. rarest of double doubles, the pitching title wow. and the batting title. And yet very few folks have even heard the name Martin DeHigo. Now you can't come out of Cuba and not know the name. It resonates in Cuba. But how in the world could you have a ball player of this magnitude and very few folks know who he is? 
but that's the plight of the Negro Leagues. As my late mother would say, you don't know what you don't know. And this museum is here to help you know. And, and then I think about the guy who on our field of legends is in center field. And Buck O'Neill would say without hesitation, now he's in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. As I mentioned, Martin DeHigo is also in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. They just, you, people just still don't know who they are. And the other is the great Oscar Charleston, also played for the Homestead Grays. And Buck O'Neill would say without hesitation that Oscar Charleston was the greatest baseball player he ever saw. Now, wow. he thought Willie Mays to be the greatest major leaguer. And, and most people concur because Willie Mays could beat you every way in which you could be beaten. He could beat you with his bat, with his arm, with his legs, with his glove. And of course, Willie Mays' illustrious professional baseball career began in the Negro Leagues as a 17-year-old center fielder, man, <laughs> controlling center field for the Birmingham Black Barons. But Buck O'Neill believed that Oscar Charleston to be the greatest baseball player he had ever seen. He was an early era Negro Leaguer who could do it all. The consummate five-tool guy. Hit for power, mm -hmm. hit for average, could feel, could run, could throw. In 1921, he led the Negro Leagues in home runs, triples, doubles, stolen bases, and batting average in the same wow. season. If you were going to compare him to a major league contemporary, he had the defensive abilities of Tris Speaker, the tenacity of Ty Cobb. Yeah, he fights you. Now, Charlie usually wouldn't start the fight, but he sure would end the fight. Uh-huh. And the bat of Babe Ruth rolled into one dynamic package, and Melvin Buck O'Neill says he never saw a center fielder who could go back on a ball the way Charleston could had uncanny instinct, just seemed to know where that ball was coming down right off the crack of the bat. And so he played a very shallow center field, almost up to the edge of the infield. So you couldn't bloop it in front of him. And unless you hit it on a rope, you couldn't get it over his head. You remember the catch that Willie Mays makes in the World Series there in the right. Polo Browns? That catch could have only been made in the polo ground. That's a home run in every other ballpark in the country. And, and, and honestly, the throw was better than the catch, but everyone remembers the catch because of the magnitude of the moment, because he had to run a country mile to make that great over-the-shoulder basket catch. Man, all the old-timers in the Negro League say, had that been Willie Mays? I mean, had that been Oscar Charleston? Melvin, he's been waiting for that ball to come down. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> that's like a cool Papa Bell story. <laughs> and it is, it is believed that he once snatched the hood off of a Ku Klux Klansman and lived to tell about it. Wow. <laughs> that's a movie all by itself right there. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Wow. So I understand there were some women who also played in the Negro Leagues. Can you tell us um, one or two stories that you have about them? Yeah, no, there were three pioneering women who called the Negro Leagues home. And again, for those who are listening, these were women who played with and against the men in the 1950s. Tony Stone was the first female of professional baseball. 
She was followed by Mamie Peanut Johnson and Connie Morgan, again, women who competed with and against the men in the Negro Leagues. Tony Stone being the first female of professional baseball, the first to play readily with men in a professional baseball league. She took the roster place of someone you've likely heard his name before, Henry Aaron, the great mm. Hank Aaron. You see, wow. when, the, when the Boston Braves signed Henry Aaron away from the Indianapolis Clowns in 1952. And, and remember now, he's with the Clowns. Henry Aaron was a skinny, cross-handed hitting shortstop when he joined the Indianapolis Clowns in 1952. And for those who may be hearing that term for the first time, Henry Aaron was a right-hand hitter who was hitting with his left hand on top. That, as you know, is unorthodox. The fear is that you break your wrist. Hitting in that manner, Henry Aaron is knocking the cover off the baseball in a highly unorthodox fashion. When he gets to the clowns, they put the right hand on top, and the rest, as they say, is history. He was shortly after discovered by the Boston Braves, who would become the Milwaukee Braves, who, of course, would become the Atlanta Braves. Henry Aaron will go down in his sport as one of his all-time greatest players, but it all began in the Negro Leagues, 1952, with the Indianapolis Clowns. Well, when the Braves signed Henry Aaron away, the Indianapolis Clowns hired Tony Stone. Uh-huh. And mm. she took his roster place. And then Mamie Peanut Johnson was a five foot three inch pitcher with a strong right arm. She was striking those fellas out. And then Connie Morgan held from Philadelphia. And all three were tremendously gifted athletes. Now, was there a marketing slant to it? Of course it was. The Negro Leagues had started to lose its primary male fan base to Major League Baseball. You see, we had a natural curiosity to see how our great black stars were going to fare when Jackie breaks the color barrier and other black and brown players start to move into Major League Baseball. The fan base that has supported Negro Leagues Baseball also moved right along with it. And so the Indianapolis Clowns hired Tony Stone, hoping that they could get a female clientele to come out. And that's exactly what happened. But because there was a marketing slant to it, doesn't take away from their tremendous athletic ability. All three of these women could play. But you tell me what in our society isn't about marketing. We're always trying to sell our product. And, and, and folks flock to those games to go see Tony and Mamie and Connie. But you know what, Melvin? There were also women executives and owners and leaders of Negro League teams. This was happening at a level that Major League Baseball had not seen before. When we started to talk about the likes of Olivia Taylor and Hilda Bolden and Minnie Forbes, and of course, the great Effa Manley, AKA the queen of the Negro Leagues. And I tell people this all the time when they visit the museum. The Negro Leagues didn't care what color you were. All they cared was, can you play? They didn't care what gender you were. Do you have something to offer? And man, it strikes me that a league born out of segregation would become the driving force for social change in this country. A league born out of exclusion would become perhaps this nation's most inclusive entity. Now, again, they didn't care what color you were. They didn't care what gender you were. That's the way it really is supposed to be. Absolutely. That's, those are some great stories. I, I'm a huge baseball fan. I know I'm, I'm unlike most people and in, in the level of um, reading I've done and throughout baseball history. So it's nice to be able to share these stories with a wider audience who are, are marginal baseball fans. Some are even 
dedicated baseball fans who may not have heard these stories. Mm-hmm. It's always great to share with a new audience. Exactly. All right. So tell me about the concept of dressing to the nines to go <laughs> and see a baseball game. Well, we do an event here in Kansas City that we do pretty much annually with the Kansas City Royals. There's been a couple of years where we didn't do it. And of course, during COVID, we couldn't do it. And, and Melvin, I tell the story all the time. Every now and then, an idea comes along and you wish it was your idea. And, and, and 20 years from now, y'all are lie and swear <laughs> it was my idea, but it wasn't my idea. Two young white kids approached me, I don't know, eight, nine years ago, and they said, Mr. Kendrick, what do you think about an idea to see if we can get fans to dress up and go to a Royal game the way they used to dress up to go to a Kansas City Monarch or a Negro Leagues game? And we want to call it Dress to the Nines. And Melvin, the first words that came out of my mouth, <laughs> damn, I can think of that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this idea was so brilliant. And so the first, the first year that we did it, we just had a couple of weeks and we, we kind of kicked off a little social media campaign to see if we get people to meet us out at the ballpark, put their Sunday best on. And, and we must have had two, 300 people that did this. And you can see other fans looking around like, what in the world is going on here? And the Royals weren't involved in year one but they loved the idea so much that they got involved in year two. They put some promotional muscle behind it. And now thousands of people come out to the ballpark with their Sunday best on dressed to the nines. Now, the era of Negro League was an era, as Buck would call it, the dress up era anyway. So pretty much anywhere that you went in society, you went looking good. But particularly for black folks, because Major League Baseball didn't really play on Sundays. And the Negro Leagues would rent the ballpark from them, play that Sunday doubleheader, and then we left church going straight to the ballpark, dressed to the nines, as they would say, looking good. And and we wanted to recreate that concept. and, And I call it the most fashionable day in baseball history, our dress to the nines. And let me tell you, the ladies. I think ladies just look for a reason to dress up anyway. <laughs> and we gave them one. And I mean, they come out in full regalia. They got their hats. They got their pearls on. They've got their gloves. But man, to see kids rocking their fedoras, you know, taking it back vintage the way that they used to back in that day. I love the fashion from that era in particular. And we recreate that experience now here in Kansas City. It would be cool to see this actually be adopted across the league uh, and have people dress up just one day out of the year to take it back the way that fans used to dress going to a ball game and that that whole idea of recreating the dress to the nines experience. That's how that came about. But if you hear me say I created the idea, just say he didn't got senile and he lied. That's, that's just that's a secret between me and you. We, we, won't, we won't tell anybody. <laughs> well, I hate to interrupt these great stories, but we need to take a short break. Uh, when we come back, I'm going to continue my conversation with Negro Leagues Museum President Bob Kendrick. So don't go anywhere. Um, you wouldn't want to miss any of these great stories. We'll be right back. 
Make 1908 House of Wine and Ale your new favorite destination between San Antonio and New Brownfels. With 15 ales on tap, more than 30 craft beers in cans and bottles, and over 70 wines, we have a selection that's perfect for both relaxing with a glass or gathering with your friends. We even have wine on tap. That's right, we have wine on tap. www.1908houseofwine.com Family and animal friendly. Hello, it's Opportunity here. I'm calling because I have an idea for you. If you have a business, you could be reaching our engaged listeners right now instead of just listening to us talking about you reaching our engaged listeners. We can be your microphone to shout out to anyone from coast to coast who listens to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, or Google. Reach out to us at melstorytellingpodcast at gmail.com and we can craft a plan that works best for you. That's melstorytellingpodcast at gmail.com. melstorytellingpodcast at gmail.com. Now, back to real life and other fantasies. We're back with Bob Kendrick. So, uh, Ms. Kendrick, um, I'm here in Texas, my home state. And Negro Leagues, the Negro Leagues were founded by fellow Texan Rube Foster. I've heard you call him the most innovative executive in baseball history. So can you tell us what you mean by that? And and honestly, Melvin, I think he may be, if not the most important, influential figure in baseball history, certainly one up. And I understand the significance of Jackie Robinson's breaking of Major League Baseball's color barrier. But think about this. Jackie Robinson don't break Major League Baseball's color barrier had it not been for the fact that Rube Foster had established the Negro Leagues as he did here in Kansas City on February 13, 1920. And he essentially accomplished what others had attempted to do but had failed to create a successful, organized Black Baseball League. But when we talk about Rube Foster, Rube Foster, man, is that rare baseball figure who would have checked the box in terms of Hall of Fame worthiness as a player, as a manager, and as an executive. And you don't find many that check all three boxes. He was brilliant at all three. He had been a great pitcher himself in the early era of black baseball. As a matter of fact, he is credited with having invented what we now know to be the screwball. Back then, they called it a fadeaway, and Rue perfected this pitch. So much so that the great major league manager, John McGraw, would sneak Rube into his camp so that Rube could teach Christy Matheson how to throw the screwball. Christy Matheson threw the pitch all the way into the National Baseball Hall of Fame that he learned from Rube Foster. But Foster was best known as this visionary, this tremendous leader. He would organize the Negro Leagues here in Kansas City in a meeting that took place at the Paseo YMCA eight independent black baseball team owners would come together. And Rube had the job of convincing them that they needed to give up their independency to create this organized league. Now, they were already making money in an independent fashion. He had to sell them on this notion that they would grow their game by organizing. And he was a masterful salesman, and he did just that. Rube would become president of his newly formed Negro League. 
He owned the Chicago American Giants and he managed the Chicago American Giants. And I tell people all the time, as a manager, he was so tremendously savvy to the point that he was known to find his ball players. At the turn of the 1900s, as much as $5 if you were tagged out standing up. Oh no, you were supposed to. <laughs> Rube would draw a circle Melvin down the first baseline and a circle down the third baseline. And if every one of his players couldn't drop a bunt inside that circle, he would find them. He was adamant about the style of play that would become signature Negro Leagues baseball. Fast, aggressive, daring. They bunt their way on. They steal second. They steal third. And man, if you weren't too smart, they were stealing home. That was Rube Foster. Rube Foster, when he formed the Negro Leagues in 1920, to give you an understanding of his forward thinking, he thought that he would create a league that was so dynamic that he would force Major League Baseball's hand to expand. So think merger of the NFL and the old AFL. Or for those of you who are basketball fans, the merger of the NBA and the ABA. Man, that was Rube Foster in 1920. He was almost right. Instead, Major League Baseball focused on the field, which would ultimately be the thing that would kill the Negro Leagues, would put the Negro Leagues out of business. But under Rube Foster's model, you'd had complete integration in Major League Baseball in the 1920s, you know, and, and that's, again, that's the brilliance of Rube Foster. Wow, that's that's pretty amazing. So do you think, this? Is, I didn't even plan this question, I just thought about it as you were talking. Do you think he would be satisfied, no. disappointed? How, how do you think we would have felt that the Negro Leagues are now officially a part of Major League Baseball? All the records I think he would be and pleased games. to know that the Negro Leagues are now recognized for what we already knew them to be, a major league. And and again, that the records of the Negro Leagues would be absorbed into Major League Baseball. But Rue, being the businessman that he was, would still be, I think, disappointed that the hierarchy of the Negro Leagues did not transition into Major League Baseball, only the players You know, you don't get your first African-American coach in Major League Baseball history until 15 years after Jackie Robinson in Buck O'Neill. Buck O'Neill joined the Chicago Cubs as the Major's first black coach in 1962. You don't get your first black manager until Frank Robinson in the mid-1970s. Bill Lucas becomes the first GM. And you had this litany of great black businessmen who were running professional baseball franchises who just simply did not get the opportunity. I think he'd be disappointed with that aspect. But yeah, no, naturally, I think as we all are, who are engaged and involved in keeping alive the history of the Negro Leagues, we're very excited to see that the Negro Leagues are getting the recognition that it so sorely deserves. And that's a great segue for my next question. Um, can you um, help relay the story of how Ted Williams used part of mm-hmm. his Hall of Fame induction speech to bring awareness to the Negro League's best players? And a lot of people thought it was out of character for Ted to do this. And quite frankly, it may have been out of character for Ted to do this because a lot of people thought that Ted just cared about Ted. And, and you know, because even his teammates, Ted was so good. His eyes, Melvin, were so good 
that Ted Williams would take that pitch that was just on the outside of the plate and, and take that walk as opposed to maybe driving in that run. And some of his teammates thought he was selfish. So when Ted Williams used his own Hall of Fame induction speech in 1966 and boldly stood there and advocated for the inclusion of Negro League players into the National Baseball Hall of Fame, as he would go on to say, as symbols of those great black stars who weren't there because they had not been given an opportunity. Five years later, Satchel Paige becomes the first for his Negro League's career to be inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. This does not happen without Ted Williams' advocation. You see, this couldn't have been just your average Joe Ball player up there, you know, making a stance and saying this should happen. No one would have paid them any attention. Ted Williams was a superstar. And when he used his platform to do that, you had to listen. A lot of people did not know that Ted Williams was Mexican-American, that his mother is was Mexican. And so Ted had a heart for this. And Ted had competed with and against them. He knew that these guys could play. Yeah, he knew. But for him to stand there and use his Hall of Fame speech to advocate on their behalf was one of the most selfless acts, I think, in sports history. The other one for me was Buck O'Neill standing there representing the 17 Negro Leaguers who got in in 2006 after he missed by one vote. You know, that was true wow. selflessness. But Ted, it doesn't happen without Ted. You know, I, every time I think and talk about this, I tip my cap to the late, great Ted Williams for what he did that ultimately opened the door for Negro League players to be enshrined in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Yeah, Ted Williams, has, since I was a child, has, has been my all-time favorite player. And when people ask me why, before I start talking about his 344 batting average or 521 home runs, I always talk about that Hall of Fame speech because yeah. that that gave it a, a different level of importance. I gave him a different level of influence, and that that's important to yeah. me. No, it was a it was a seminal moment in baseball history, particularly again for all of us who are stewards of this story of the Negro Leagues. Right. Okay, so um, since this is an auditory medium, um, I'd like for you to give the audience a quick um, tour, help them visualize what it's like to go to the Negro Leagues Baseball Hall of Fame, and then tell them what they can do to help support um, the efforts that you have there. The way we set up the museum, folks, is that you walk into an old ballpark. And of course, as traditional to walking into an old ballpark, the first thing you see is the field. Of course, here it is called the Field of Legends. And Melvin, I think it is one of the most amazing displays in any museum anywhere in the world. Now, I'm biased, obviously, but it is so compelling. It's a mock baseball diamond that houses 10 of 12 life-size bronze sculptures that are on display here. The 10 that are on the field are cast in position as if they were playing a game. And they represent 10 of the first group of Negro League players to be inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame, where you're looking from the outside onto the field through a chicken wire barrier. Chicken wire is actually symbolic of American segregation. You see, during that era, if black fans were allowed in to watch a major league game, 
that is typically how we were separated. So black fans would sit either down the left or right field lines. We would be separated from white fans who sat in the rest of the ballpark with a chicken wire barrier. We used that same chicken wire to separate all of our visitors from the centerpiece of our exhibition. Well, we want to create, I guess, the illusion or at least the desire that you can see that field, but you can't get to it. And the only way that you're allowed to take the field here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, you literally have to earn that right. And you do so by learning their story. And so by the time you've bared witness to everything that they had to endure just to play baseball, the very last thing that happens at the Negro Leagues Museum is now you can take the field. And in many respects, you're now deemed worthy to walk out on the field, as I like to say, with 10 of the baddest brothers to ever play this game. <laughs> and along that journey is set on a timeline of American history. Everything above the timeline is baseball related. Captured inside the timeline are what I call historical reflections of things that were happening to African-Americans at that particular juncture in our country's history. So really, it becomes an all-encompassing an all history lesson. You not only come here and witness the rise and subsequent fall of the Negro Leagues, but you literally witness the social rise of America simultaneously. That's great. I've, I haven't been there yet. Uh, it's, it's definitely on my bucket list. Um, I, I need to go in the next year. I definitely need and to go. And hopefully I'll get a chance to meet yeah, you. No, you got to come see us. It is such a special place. I, well, I definitely plan to come. All right. So as we wind down this episode, I'm going to give you nine names, sort of like a lineup, <laughs> no particular order. And I want you to say um, the first thing that comes to your mind about that person. So the, the first one is a little bit of a curveball. And then the other eight will just be batting practice fastballs. <laughs> so nothing, <laughs> nothing tricky. All right. The first one, Ichiro Suzuki. One of my favorite people, man, could have played in the Negro Leagues, had a, a special bond with Buck O'Neill. And, and honestly, Melvin, I think he had this bond with Buck O'Neill and Buck had this bond with Ichiro because Buck understood the plight that these players coming into this country, what they had to go through. Because it didn't matter how great Ichiro had been in Japan. The minute he said he was coming over here to play Major League Baseball, all the skeptics said, oh, you did that in your league, but you won't do it in our league. And what does he do? He ripped up this league, too. And the Negro League players went through the exact same thing. The Major League said, oh, y'all did that over in your league, but you won't do this in our league. And they came over and ripped up Major League Baseball, too. It just goes to show that a great baseball player is a great baseball player. A great athlete is a great athlete. It doesn't matter what league you're in. And that's where that bond between Buck and Ichiro came and a friendship and a kinship that we all share with the great Ichiro Suzuki, a first ballot Hall of Famer. He definitely should be. He should get 100%. He should get 100% too. Okay, so the next person is Buck Leonard. Probably the greatest first baseman this game has ever seen. Buck Leonard, dazzling first baseman, line drive hitter with power, hit over 400 when he was 40 years old. Turned down an opportunity to go to major leagues because he knew he was too old. Wow. Okay, the next one, Smokey Williams. Great stuff. Few, if any, threw harder than Smokey Joe Williams from Seguin, Texas. 
Yeah, he could get it up there in a hurry. <laughs> One struck out 27 monarchs in a game in a, a game under the lights. They were playing in the playing night game uh under the monarchs light, man. He mowed down 27 monarchs in that game. Well, I actually forgot he was from Seguin. I live about 15 minutes from yeah. there or 15, 15 miles from there. Forgot about that. There's actually a field there named after him. All right. So the next one is Judy Johnson. Cerebral. Just a very intelligent ball player who was a natural born winner. Everywhere he played, his teams won. He was a great third baseman, although here at the museum, we've got him at shortstop. Of course, you played in the Negro Leagues, you played multiple positions. And he is the guy that's credited with having discovered a young female by the name of Josh Gibson. Wow. I did not know that. That's a great story. <laughs> All right. The, the next one is another Texan, Willie Wells. El Diablo, the devil, because he could dig it out the dirt. One of the greatest shortstops of all time. He was Ozzie Smith before we ever knew who the wizard was. Willie Wells was making those same kind of acrobatic plays, but Willie Wells was a power hitting shortstop. Yeah, absolutely. Austin, Texas. Yes. All right. Our next player is Turkey Stearns. The Gobbler, a.k.a. the Gobbler. <laughs> cool Papa Bell said that if Turkey Stearns is not in the Hall of Fame, then no one should be in the Hall of Fame. Earned his nickname Turkey wow. because of his unorthodox way in which he stood at the place somewhat pigeon-toed, and when he ran, his arms flapped like a turkey. But I tell people all the time, Melvin, this turkey could flat out fly. Great outfielder, <laughs> great hitter, uh, power hitting outfielder, but he also hit for average. All right. Our next one is Monty Irvin. My dear friend, my dear friend, the late great Monty Irvin could have been the first. He was Branch Rickey's, really his first choice, not Jackie Robinson. And Monty Irvin was a five-tool superstar with movie star good looks. Yeah, and a young Roberto Clemente idolized Monty Irvin. When Monty played in Puerto Rico, a young Roberto Clemente carried his uniform. And when you carry the player's uniform, they let you in the game for free. And Roberto Clemente Jr. said that Monty Irvin gave his father his first real baseball glove, but there was nothing that Monty Irvin oh. could not do on the baseball field. That's right. All right, so we got two more. Um, Leon Day. Leon Day, one of the great two-way stars of the Negro Leagues in a league that was filled with great two-way stars. Monty Irvin said, if you saw Bob Gibson, you saw Leon Day. But Buck O'Neill says that Leon Day was a better center fielder than he was pitcher, and he's in the National Baseball Hall of Fame as a pitcher. <laughs> wow. competitor, played every position except for catch. Leon Day was as versatile as they came. Wow. All right, so I said they would all be fastballs here, but I, I do have a little bit of a changeup I just thought of. I'd like to ask about Rachel Robinson. Should be in the Hall of Fame. To me, she is the first lady of baseball. That's royalty when you talk about Rachel Robinson, who at the time of this recording just turned 101 years young, man. 
the grace and dignity that she demonstrated. You know, because Jackie never broke down publicly, but you kind of get the uh, impression that she was the shoulder that he cried on. She was his rock. Uh-huh. And there would not have been a Jackie Robinson without Rachel Robinson being there to also shoulder so much of that burden. Uh, and again, the grace, class, and dignity, she is just as beautiful today as she was when Jackie married her. Yes, uh, some someone who everybody should know about and should revere. Uh, certainly a, a historical figure in and of her, her own right. No doubt. All right, so that's a, a perfect way, I think, to end today's show. Uh, Bob Kendrick, on behalf of all the ears and the minds that you've blessed today, thank you very much, sir. Uh, I hope you come back again sometime because I have lots of questions I could ask you, and I, well, I'd love to have the chance. Plenty more stories that we can tell, and, and I do appreciate uh, the opportunity to be on the show. Thanks so much for reaching out, uh, and you know, anytime. Well, that's it for today's episode of Real Life and Other Fantasies. Join us again next time when we have a conversation with Darren Evans to discuss a topic that I guarantee you haven't thought about before. It'll be so thought-provoking that I, I don't even want to give it away. I want you to hear his unique story from him. So please join us next time for that episode. Until then, remember, shine some light wherever you go. That was another edition of Real Life and Other Fantasies with your host, Melvin E. Edwards. Join us again next time for more stories about more things than you can imagine. Some of those true stories may even be about real life. See you next time.